0: Well, welcome to all of you that are meeting with us here at Central Campus. Also, those of you who are joining us online, which I am assuming is an increased swelled number, uh, just based upon our attendance here this morning. And those of you who are meeting together uh, at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also in Northwest Calgary. Well, we've had quite a storm yesterday, brought life in Calgary to a total standstill. Uh, But the good news is that the storm is over, the sun is shining, and the birds are singing, and what a great time for God's people to be real Canadians, scrape their windshields, and come together to worship our living Lord. Amen? This is truly the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it I just want to say that I am so grateful to be part of a church that's committed to introducing people to Jesus and helping them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus who who together are, are giving their lives to accomplishing God's redemptive purposes in our city our nation and our world thank you for responding to God's call in your life and for doing your part to advance the mission that God has called us to as a church through the giving of your time, the the talents and the gifts that God has uh, blessed you with, and also your financial resources. I know that you'll be encouraged to know that this past weekend, uh, during our Resurrection Weekend services, um, we are aware of 14 adults and 37 children who prayed to put their trust in Jesus and begin a relationship with Him for the very first time. Every day we're witnessing God change the earthly and the eternal trajectory of people's lives. And He's using each of us and all of us together uh, as a church to accomplish this through our prayers, uh, through our expressions of love, Through our invitations to people and also our serving and our giving as unto the Lord. So, this weekend, we're continuing in our series of 1 John, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote in response to false teaching that was infiltrating the early church about what it meant to be a Christian. And so, John purposed to not only confront those particular falsehoods, but also to give a description. Of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Now, as you've read 1 John, I'm sure you've probably noticed that John is very direct, sometimes quite blunt in the way that he puts things, and that he also sets the bar really high in his description of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And so I need to clarify again that John is not saying, that if you want to become a Christian, if you want to have eternal life, you must meet this standard. No, he's saying the evidence that you are a Christ follower is that you will want to live this way. And that even though you won't be able to live this way perfectly, the direction of your life will be to live this way. In short, to live and to love like Jesus did. Well, with that in mind, in chapter 1, right through the first couple of verses of chapter 2, John begins by saying that Christ's followers believe in Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he actually lived on this planet because that was an issue then as well, um, that he taught profound truths, performed amazing miracles, and as we just reviewed this last weekend, he died on a cross to atone for our sins, was buried, then rose on the third day, appearing not only to his disciples, but to more than 500 people all at the same time. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 3, John emphasizes that Christ followers don't just believe these things about Jesus, but they actually believe in Jesus and believe Jesus by cultivating a growing friendship with him and together with other Christians in the church seek to live like him and to love like him. Which brings us to our scripture passage today that we're going to look at in which John gives further evidence of true followers of Jesus Christ. He says, authentic Christians do not love the world, but love God with all of their heart. This will be the focus of our time in the Word today. I'm going to invite you to please stand and join me in reading our Scripture lesson for today. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for written word. Of course, we thank you for sending to us the living word, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would just prepare us now to receive what you want to say to us. Lord, that you would clarify things that need to be clarified. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus our minds, that you would soften our hearts. and Lord, you give us the courage to do and to be what it is you're calling us to do and to be. Before we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the Apostle John begins this section with a stern warning do not love the world or anything in the world. So, what does he mean by the world? Well, the word he uses in the original Greek language. Is the word cosmos which we see used in at least two ways in the New Testament sometimes it is used to mean the physical world like we see in Acts chapter 17 verse 24 the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth Other times it's used to refer to humanity, like we read in the well-known verse of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. So we can deduce from this, when John says, do not love the world, he's not referring, first of all, to the physical world, the universe, the earth, which God created. Neither is he saying that we should not appreciate the beauty and the usefulness of the earth, because we know that God created the world, and he proclaimed it to be good. We also know from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that he provided it all for our enjoyment. So he's not meaning that. Neither is John referring to the human race and saying that we should hate or that we should ignore the people of the world, close the door and, you know, avoid everything that, you know, is around us, the humanity around us. Because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his precious son to die and to save the world. We matter big time to God. And so when John writes, do not love the world, what he's really referring to is a world view that doesn't acknowledge God's existence or that ignores God and lives a life independent of him. It's a worldview that focuses on the earthly and the natural realm only. Gives no thought to anything beyond the natural realm. And does not believe in the spiritual or the eternal realm. It is also a system of beliefs, of values and behaviors that are polar opposite to the ways of God. In chapter 4, verse 3, here in 1 John, John refers to it as the spirit of the Antichrist or the evil forces of this world that are in opposition to the purposes of God. And we see this emphasized all throughout Scripture. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus came to establish a new kingdom, a new community under his lordship, under his kingship. And in John chapter 18, verse 36, he said this, My kingdom is not of this world. In saying this, Jesus was articulating that there are really two kingdoms, two systems, two ways of thinking and living at work in our world today. The one could be called the kingdom of this world, and the other the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world essentially says it's all about you. You are the center of the universe, and so you deserve to be happy. You only go around once, so don't suppress your desires. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, well, then buy it, even if you can't afford it, because you deserve it. The kingdom of God says it's not about you at all. It's about the God who created you and who loves you more than you'll ever know. The more you know and love and walk with God, believe him and follow him, the more satisfied and fulfilled your life will be. The kingdom of this world teaches that your value is linked to who you know, to what you do, to what you accomplish, to what you own, to what you wear, to what you drive and where you live. The kingdom of God teaches your identity, significance, and value is not based on your success, status, or your stuff. It is simply based on the fact that you are his child. Period. In short, the kingdom of God is dramatically different than the kingdom of this world. And when the Apostle John says here, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's referring to the kingdom of this world. And he's concerned enough that he drills down deeper and gives a definition and description of what it means to love the world or the kingdom of this world. Look at verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now notice he uses the word lust in the description of the world. The word lust is a legitimate natural desire that has become too important to you So much so that it begins to control you. There's nothing wrong with desire. Most desires are God-given. The desire to eat, to drink, to work, to play, to create, to achieve, to be intimate sexually, these are all natural desires. However, when we allow them to control and to master us, when we believe we will never be happy without them and are prepared to disobey God's design and God's direction in order to have them, then we have moved from a natural God-given desire into the realm of unnatural, unhealthy, sinful perversion called lust. See, notice he says here, in First in John, that it, that it is the lust of the flesh, of the eyes, and so forth, that comes not from God. The desires come from him. It's the lust that does not come from him. The Apostle Paul said, Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If you can't say no to a desire, if you can't hold something with an open hand, then you're not controlling it. It is controlling you. John describes the first area as the lust of the flesh. The flesh refers to the sensual or pleasurable side of our fallen nature. It's essentially what you feel. The lust of the flesh is seen in a person who lives primarily for sensual gratification. The person who, for example, doesn't eat to live, but lives to eat. Hunger is not sinful, but gluttony is. Relaxing and being comfortable is not sinful, but becoming a slave to ease and to luxury is. Work is a good thing. Vacationing is a good thing. Recreation is a good thing. But they become sinful when we allow them to crowd out God and his calling in our lives. The desire for sexual intimacy is not sinful. But when we conclude we can't be fulfilled, we can't be happy or human without it and are prepared to engage in it outside of God's design, We are sinning. John says all these are lust of the flesh, the abuse and the perversion of certain desires, and he challenges us not to go there. Secondly is the lust of the eyes. While the lust of the flesh focuses on what you feel inside and want to do or experience, the lust of the eyes focuses on what you see And want to have. This is the desire to possess something so badly you believe you can't be happy or you can't really be complete without it. It can be the desire to have a certain amount of money, certain possessions like a certain car or home, or a desire to be in relationship with a certain person or to look a certain way or to dress a certain way. Again, none of these desires in themselves is wrong. In fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus, he didn't say that having earthly treasures, earthly desires, are wrong in themselves. He said they are dangerous. Because we might sell out to something that won't last and disappoint us greatly one day. Desire turns to lust... When you have to have something so badly, your happiness and your identity depends on it. When you're jealous of and you resent those who have what you want. Or when you're prepared to go into debt or to spend reckless amounts of money or time in order to have it. And then thirdly, there is the pride of life. While the lust of the flesh focuses on what you feel and what you want to enjoy and experience and the lust of the eyes focuses on what you see and want to have or possess the pride of life focuses on what you want to be seen to be. On what you want other people to think about you. God placed in us a desire to be creative. To do our best, to make an impact, to accomplish things. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve things, to do a good job, to be affirmed for the things that we've accomplished. But when we're prepared to sacrifice our health and the health of our marriage, family, and friendships, in order to be seen or admired as better or as more successful or more effective than everyone else. When our identity and our worth is based in our accomplishments rather than who we are in the eyes of God, when we look at every relationship in terms of how we compare with them, when we look down on those who've attained less than we have, when people's approval is more important to us than God's approval, and when our success tempts us to believe that we're secure and we'll be just fine without God's help, then healthy pride has turned into boastful unhealthy pride. John says, don't love these things. Don't set your heart on these things. Don't sell your soul for these earthly, temporary things. So let me ask you, as you look at what makes your adrenaline flow, when you look at what you treasure in life, when you look at your lifestyle, what you want in life, how you spend your time and your money. Which kingdom are you giving your life to? The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? I want you to turn to the very last verse in this letter, 1 John 5, verse 21. Look how he ends this letter dear children keep yourselves from idols now you read that you read that and it looks like John's introducing a new thought doesn't it but then he just stops leaving you wonder well where's the rest of the letter John But you see I believe that John wasn't introducing a new idea there Rather, he was summarizing the heart of everything he taught in this letter. See, in this letter, John is essentially saying, the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And at various points, he warns us that there is a kingdom, the kingdom of this world that is filled with seductive idols or counterfeit gods that appeal to our flesh, that appeal to our eyes and also to our pride and can win over our affection over time and become the object of our worship. And he pleads with us to see it for what it is. And not to go there. When John says here, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's essentially reinforcing the first and the second commandment. Where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, the God of the Bible is saying, I want my relationship with you to be exclusive. Exclusive. I do not want to be one among several gods that you worship or adore or trust. God's saying, honor me as God alone. Acknowledge my existence, affirm my sovereignty, obey my directives, and let me be the center of your affections. He's saying, don't worship demons angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, or the zodiac. He's saying don't worship other people and don't worship yourself. Don't worship material goods, pleasure, fame, or money. Don't worship fashion, position, or the applause of others. Just worship and glorify me alone says God. I demand top priority in your life. I'm not going to play second fiddle to anyone or anything, including your family, your career, your money, even your pleasures. You know, several years ago, I talked with a young man who said to me, I could never believe in a God who sits on a heavenly throne somewhere demanding the worship and the adoration of everyone. He saw it as totally a God that was totally self-serving. Now, is that what is behind James' command here when he says, do not love the world? Is that what is behind the first commandment to love the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do these commands to love and to worship God alone rise out of a heart of an insecure God who is protecting his divine ego by placing restrictions on the focus of our worship? Absolutely not. But make no mistake, let's not forget that God is all-powerful all-knowing and everywhere present. Let's not forget that He is the Creator and Lord of the universe, and that He is the sustainer of the universe, and that He can do what He wants. And even as He gave us life, He can take our life. Every heartbeat in our chest is a gift from Him. And folks, that is why He is more than worthy of our worship. Let's not forget that. But while he is worthy of our worship, the reason God calls us to worship him alone is that he knows wherever else we focus our ultimate allegiance and affections will only lead to terrible disappointment in our lives, both now but also for eternity. Put another way, whatever God you worship outside of the true God, that God will not come through for you in the end. And folks, that's why God will not settle for partial devotion. That's why he wants to be the object of our highest affection and our worship, not because he feels insecure or needs our praise and adoration to stroke his fragile ego, but because he knows That satisfaction in this life can only be found in him and in living life his way. The best this life has to offer in terms of pleasure, power, position, possessions, and people will disappoint us one day if for no other reason that they are temporary and one day we will die and leave them all behind or they will perish before we do. That's precisely what John is saying here in verse 17. He says, The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God, that's assuming you know God, you love God, you're living for him, you're walking with him. He who does the will of God lives forever. He's saying, invest your life in the true God, not in these counterfeit gods. Poor investment. The ads say, you know, wear our jeans and you'll be popular. Buy our product and you'll be successful. Use our toothpaste, our cologne, our gum, you'll have sex appeal. Well, we all know better, but we buy it anyways. Just in case. Our culture tells us that our significance in the eyes of others is determined by the possessions that we have, the position that we hold, the power we wield, the popularity that we have, and yet all of these will let us down one day. Almost every week I have a conversation with someone who is shell-shocked having suddenly realized that what they staked their life on didn't come through for them. The relationship they invested in so heavily, even compromised their convictions for, suddenly fell apart. The business or the career that they sold their life out for suddenly didn't work out or it just didn't work out in the end. And they're devastated. Promises were broken. Covenants were violated. Projections were wrong. Plans went awry. Charts went down. One by one, people come to terms with the painful reality that parents or spouses or children don't always come through for us. And all this leads sincere people to cry out, who can I really count on in this life? Where can I pin my hopes? Where can I focus my affections and my longings? The longings of my heart. And John responds here saying, the answer is essentially found in God and God alone. It is found in loving, in worshiping, honoring and doing the will of God alone. Only God is eternal. Only God will be there for us now and forever. In the words of Psalm 46, he is our refuge, he is our strength. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother who will never leave us or forsake us. His love endures forever. And that is why, church, that he and he alone is worthy of our love, our praise, our adoration, and our worship. Just a few brief thoughts in closing. First of all, the warning that John gives here to not love the world typically doesn't happen overnight. It's not something like a switch goes off and all of a sudden, now you're totally sold out to the world. No, it's a gradual process where little decisions are made or not made until one day a person almost sort of wakes up and sometimes they don't wake up sometimes a person wakes up and realizes that their affections are totally around someone or something other than God. And I don't believe that sincere Christians want to end up there. I know I don't. So what safeguards can we put into place to kind of prevent us from being seduced into loving and giving our affections to the temporary counterfeit gods that are going to disappoint us greatly one day. Well, I'd like to suggest a few things. First of all, it's incredibly important that we're in the Scriptures daily. Research just is so disappointing when... when, when I read the research about what Christians in North America, how much time they're actually spending in the scriptures. Romans 12 verse 2 says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Often our attitudes and our values and our priorities and the decisions we make are a reflection of what's going on in our mind. The pattern of this world, we're going to follow that pattern unless we renew our minds with Scripture, with the truth of God. If our minds are centered on the Lord and His Word, we will be far more inclined to be influenced by the Lord and His wisdom. If our minds are centered more on the things of this world, we will be far more inclined to be influenced, to love the things of this world. So I want you to think about your typical day and how much time you spend on your phone or on social media watching television, sports, news, what's happening in politics, the life of celebrities, who's saying what on Twitter, and the like. You just think about that. Like, you know, your phone will actually tell you how much you've spent on the phone that day, like surfing on the net and everything else. It'll tell you how many hours, and I mean hours, and it it boggles my mind because I've been shocked when I've looked at my phone sometimes, and it tells me how long I've been on my phone. I have this thing called Flipboard kind of exposes me to news clips, to um, sports, to uh, different things. You know, what's happening in the life of celebrities and so forth, you know, I figure it might help me and, you know, when I preach and everything else, kind of stay up, you know, what's going on in politics. Oh my goodness, I can go to that a lot. And you see... When you think about the fact of how surrounded we are by the messaging of the world, a world that has a a worldview that is is counter opposite to the Christian faith. And how much we're being exposed to that. A worldview that is focused on getting our attention and trying to persuade us to believe certain things, to want certain things, to spend our money and time in certain ways and to live our lives in certain ways. can you see why we are so prone to begin to love the things of this world? I mean, compare that with how much time we're spending in the scriptures or listening to worship music even or engaging in anything that affirms and reminds you of your Christian beliefs and convictions and values and we can see why we have the struggle we have. All that to say we need to be aware of the sinister influence of the world, the media, on our lives, our values, and deliberately take steps to counteract that by exposing our minds to God's truth and his wisdom for life in what we read, what we listen to. Secondly, in addition to our personal time in the Word daily, it's critical, I believe, that we faithfully and consistently attend our weekly worship services not only to remind ourselves of the mighty god that we serve through worship not only to celebrate all that god is doing but also to be reminded on a weekly basis of the eternal truths through the consistent teaching of god's word Again, research is so depressing. But, you know, they say that now, you know, the average Christian, no, that's not right. Christians on the average, there's quite a difference between those two. Um, Christians on the average attend worship services like this. Once, once, a month at best once every three weeks on average. And you see, <laughs> we we've got to we've got to focus a little bit on, on on the reality of a world that has us already so ensnared in its way of thinking. A world that gets us focused totally on the temporary things of life. And why, as a result, it is important not only for us to have personal time where we're focusing on what we truly believe, but also where we come together and are reminded of what God's word has to say to us and of Jesus' words where he said once what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul I mean where throughout your week do you hear messages like that where is someone reminding you to give your life to that which is going to matter in the end And that's why this needs to be a a growing priority in our lives. And then thirdly, we can overcome being seduced by the world by committing ourselves to being in community with one another. In the words of Hebrews 10.24, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. When we meet together as Christians, you know, we have an opportunity not only to, you know, just care for each other and encourage each other and so forth, but also to challenge each other through our lives, through our words and so forth, to not sell out to temporary stuff. Instead, to give our lives to things that are really going to matter to us and to God in the end. And then fourthly, even though we need to guard against loving the the counterfeit gods of this world, I want to remind us that we've been called by God to love the people of this world. In a sense, to not, you know, close our doors and close our blinds to the people around us. We're we're not to worship the gods that the people around us are worshiping but he does call us to love them and hopefully through our lives to introduce introduce them to the true God we demonstrate our love for the Lord when we're generous when instead of working overtime to make more money that we really don't need we actually give priority to serving people to mentoring people to spending time with people who are far from God. Providing a meal or a cup of cold water to people who are in need. Just being salt and light in the world. We demonstrate our love for the Lord and his kingdom when, when comforting and encouraging someone, when we're comforting and encouraging someone who's lonely or hurting in some way or sharing what Jesus means with us with someone. When all of that means so much more to us than making another killing in the stock market. May we love the world this way and be people whose lives and values point people to God and what's really going to matter in the end. You know, when, they, when their lives intersect with ours and they watch us, may they too realize that the idols of this world The counterfeit gods that they're worshiping will not only disappoint them, but they are just far too shallow. They will never meet the deep uh, need or that sense, that vacuum that's in their soul. May they too realize, as we have, that it's not just pleasure that we're looking for, but it's actual joy. It's the joy of the Lord that gives us strength. When they look at our lives, may they too realize that we don't need more stuff. What we really need is contentment. And that contentment like that, peace like that, can only come through God and God alone. When they look at us, may they too come to realize that it's it's not really achievement that matters. So much as significance. And true significance is found in knowing, loving, and living like Jesus. You know, friends, everyone has a God. Everyone. Either it's the God of the Bible or it's the God of another faith. Or it will be a God or idol that we've made up or just given our affection to to suit our interests and our desires. But a God we will have. If you want to discover who your God really is, I'm going to give you some questions that will help you identify what God you're really serving. In a moment, we're going to stand and close the way we often do, by asking God, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? But in preparation for that, in preparation, I want you to begin to ask God, what are you saying to me as you look at these questions? And here they are. What occupies your mind during your free time? What do you daydream about a lot? What do you fantasize about having and doing? Who do you want to be close to and please more than anything? Whose affection and attention do you crave the most? What is causing you the most anxiety? What fears are you struggling with? are you terrified of losing? What is the one thing you would say without this life would not be worth living? Would you please stand? Let's just continue to stand before the Lord now. Let's open our hands to him and let's now ask him these two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? As I've reflected on these questions, what are you saying to me, Lord? Lord, what do you ask me to do about it? So again, Lord, we thank you for your word, the written word, the living word. We thank you for um, its instruction in life. We thank you for the work of your spirit, gently reminding us of the truth of your word, of the way of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would not grow insensitive to the Spirit, I pray, oh God, that we would open the Scriptures often and allow you to remind us and to speak to us and to bring correction in our lives where correction is needed. Because we love you, Lord. We truly want you to be the center of our praise and adoration and worship. And I pray that that would be so in everyone's life that's hearing this prayer right now. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'd like a special prayer, there are prayer partners. They are making their way up here right now. We'd love to pray with you before you go. God bless.